Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Rachel True. And I'm Trent Venegas. And you're listening to Quoting Gene Roddenberry. The 100-day podcast that celebrates what would have been the 100th birthday of the man that created Star Trek. Each day between now and the end of our podcast, August 19th, one of Star Trek's biggest icons, or celebrity fans, or both, will be quoting Gene Roddenberry. Then we're going to take a deep dive into why we think this sci-fi legend still has a lot to say to the world. Today's quote is read by the fabulous actress Ming-Na Wen. With Star Trek, what I was trying to do was to get a sort of family group representing different types, representing different types of humanity so that our audience would feel at home on the ship. And welcome back, everyone, to Quoting Gene Rodberry. I'm Sharon Melton in for the amazing, fabulous Rachel True. She'll be back soon, but Trent is here as always, and we Hi. love that. Hey there. And also we have the amazing Gary Witta, who is with us as well, screenwriter and author extraordinaire. And we have an amazing quote we're talking about, too. So I want to hear from you, Trent. What do you yep. think about this particular important quote? Let me tell you, first of all, Ming-Na Wen, I love her so much. The Joy Luck Club, one of my favorite films. If you've never seen it, please go watch it. I promise you, you will love it. It's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic film. Love it. Okay, so families, I have been patiently waiting for (laughs) one of the quotes to talk about families and the way that families are represented in Star Trek. Because when I think about one of my favorite characters that are families of the entire 90s, I think about Deep Space Nine and I think about Commander Benjamin Sisko and his son, Jake. And, you know, a lot of of discussion has been about like important families and storylines in the 90s about, you know, sitcoms and dramas and all of that. And a lot of people do not talk about the relationship that we see on Deep Space Nine from the commanding officer and his son. He is a widower. He lost his wife at the Battle of Wolf. Wolf uh, 359. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only was he uh, the prophet to the Bajorans, and not only was he the commanding officer in the Alpha Quadrant at the wormhole, like the, the first line of defense against the Dominion and, and all of that, but he was also a father who loved his son. And we saw it every single time that they interacted on camera. They hugged often. The affection that you see between uh, Benjamin Sisko and Jake He kisses his son. He kisses his son on the head, on the cheek. Uh, Benjamin's father kisses him when they greet each other throughout the seasons. And um, it's my it's my favorite thing about one of my favorite things about Deep Space Nine is that relationship and that Gene felt it so important that the viewers saw their families in his stories, Gene and the writers, because this was beyond beyond uh, when Gene was alive. But the legacy of Gene Roddenberry throughout all of the Star Trek series is that it was important for families at home to see themselves represented on the show. So like on, on the enterprise and on, on, on the next generation, uh, 
Chief Miles O'Brien, his wife Keiko, and then Molly and Yoshi, their children, Ensign Samantha Wildman and her daughter Naomi uh, in on Voyager. And when Naomi Wildman was born, she was the baby that everybody on Voyager raised because she was the like the a new living uh, crew member on yes. the on the ship. And it's like you know what does that say to single mothers who who are raising a child when their their husband or or partner is on deployment somewhere and they're you know and they have to raise them at home or when a parent loses their their husband or wife and they have to raise their child on their own like more than just you know the nuclear family we are made up of so many different kinds of family uh combinations and i love so much that gene made it a hallmark of his storytelling to have those families represented so gary i'm gonna throw this to you now how does this resonate with you this the, the concept of uh family is it's it's not an uncommon you know i work in film and television as a screenwriter it's not an uncommon concept in television i remember i developed a, a show some years ago uh with a with a showrunner who had done a, a bunch of very popular network television shows and the one thing that he told me that's always stuck with me, and it's, it's, it's just not like any kind of great insight. It's, it's something that most people that work in film and television will tell you, is that all of the really popular television shows are really about family, whether mm-hmm. they are ostensibly or not. And, you know, you can tell you obviously any number of, of shows from, you know, from Leave It to Beaver, you know, to the Cosby show, you know, onwards that, you know, were built around the idea of kind of, you know, the classic American uh, family unit, The Simpsons, on and on it goes, a fa- you know, family as family. But then there is, a, but then you look at shows like Cheers and MASH, uh, and you know we talked about NYPD Blue on a previous episode. All, all they were, they were all fa- they weren't genetically, biologically related. They weren't family families, but they were. Yes, they were like they treated each other like family. Whether yes. it be you know the whether it be a you know, kind of Hawkeye and you know the, the the doctors and nurses and surgeons of the you know of of that kind of mobile you know army surgical unit or the detectives of the 15th squad or just the group of kind of dysfunctional people that kind of come together in a Boston bar they all come to see each other as family and they'll go back to they'll go to bat to one another just like members of family this now i mean hollywood now wears its heart on its sleeve with this like more than you think about the fast and the furious movies yes. they just say it over the time it's about family yeah. it's about family yeah. it's about family yeah. like they, I actually think they, they hammer it home so hard that almost was like, we get it, we get it. We can see that you lo- you guys love it's each other. Meme- like the memes of the family. Yes, it's it's very, much so. become, very much it's so. It's become memeified. But yes, it's something that runs through name almost any hit TV. They're obviously always going to be outliers, but name almost any kind of big hit TV show. And I can make an argument for how really that that's a show about a family absolutely and the idea of a found family and the family that you kind of bring together and collect from all these kind of like odd random pieces is often as valid as the family that you're born into is is something that kind of runs through uh so much of american popular te- television and film uh that it's again it's it's a very very kind of you know broadly accepted idea i think where where gene uh, goes one step further is is in this idea of positing a family that is made up of all kinds of you know different types. And again, when you're born when you're born into you know, a, a kind of genetic a biological family, you know they're generally you know there's 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 a lot of similarities you know between them. But when it's a found family, again, when it, whether it's the crew of a starship yeah. or yeah. you know a military unit or a police unit or whatever, again or people in a bar that, that you have you have the opportunity there to kind of like bring together many more 
diverse elements. And they think about it all the time, you know, like the headwinds. And I don't know how many battles Gene had to fight with the networks back in the day, in the 1960s, just to put a black woman on the bridge yes. of a starship, yeah. you know, or, you know, or, you know, or, you know, or, you know back, you know, back then, you know, they, I guess they still are, but like back in the sixties, you know, the Russians, we were terrified of the Russians, right? Yeah, they were going to, they were going to destroy us. And so the idea of putting a, you know, a Russian on uh, the, the, the bridge of a starship was kind of an interesting uh, and forward-thinking idea. And that carried forward into the next generation. Yep. Oh, my God, there's a Klingon serving, yep. you know, yep. on, on the bridge of a Federation starship. That was a really, really new and scary idea because, you know, the Klingons always always kind of represented the Russians and the others yes. and the scary yes. ones that were out right. to destroy us. And the idea that – I love the idea that as, as forward-thinking as Star Trek was, next generation took the next – you know, we've progressed even beyond that now where the people that we the, that we thought of as, as our enemies can now be our friends. Like mm -hmm. we've put a lot of the troubles with the Klingons behind us to the, to the extent now that we can actually have a Klingon – you know, a Klingon serving as a security officer mm -hmm. yeah. on the bridge on the bridge of the Federation flagship. That was that would have been unthinkable in Kirk's time, right? And yep. the, the reason why the Undiscovered Country is one of my favorite movies that Kirk goes from that moment of let them die, you know, that, yeah. that whole thing where it's like, man, they really hated the Klingons back then. There was an mm -hmm. idea that they were such an intractable, intractable enemy that we would never ever, you know, find peace with them. And it took a cataclysmic event you know, the destruction of Praxis to get mm -hmm. us to that point. But that's often how history works. It takes like a seismic, you know, um, uh, what, you know, black swan event to change the status quo, but it did. And we got to a point, you know, in that fictionalized future where decades later, we were pretty, the, the Klingons and humans were pretty cool with each other. Yeah, that's a great exactly. point. Look at Seven of Nine. Seven of Nine, like the Borg, the most villain, one of the most villainous villains, and she became a crew member exactly. on, on Voyager, and now she lives on in Star Trek Picard. So, and, and on top of that, and on top of that, not only humanizing the Klingons, but reminding people that they also are humanized in a sense when it comes to their families. I mean, yep. Worf bringing on Alexander, yes. the son he never even knew he had. Yes. And then you show the the relationship between what is ultimately a father and a son mm -hmm. and allowing that relationship to continue to flourish and letting people know that there are all types of families, bringing in single families. I mean, Beverly Crusher with her son and all of that. Mm -hmm. It allowed every single family to be represented in a way, I think, that most people could never even begin to comprehend. It's like, okay, my neighbor is a, a single mother. She's okay. My neighbor is a single father. He's okay. My neighbor has different types of people who look different in the same family. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about different races and all of that. When you had interspecies relationships within this, this conglomerate of amazing television and movies with Gene Roddenberry too, it, it goes to show you that families are the ones that we can create and the yes. ones that we make, they're equal to each other. And it's okay to have differences within the families and still be a true family. And I think yeah. that alone helps to transition to us as well, that it's okay as human beings to do the same. Yeah. I feel like having that kind of multicultural, kind of multi-species bridge that we had, if you think, again, we, we progressed so much, like even Star Trek, in in Gene's day in the sixties, it was still a bunch of it's still a bunch of humans on the bridge. Like you know, Vol Spark was basically half Vulcan. That was yeah. as far as they went to to imagine. Well, there might be some like non-humans in the mix yep. as well, even though we're living in a future where humans are now just one of many, many, many species. And I, I felt like the original series always just kind of paid lip service to the idea that there might be a other alien cultures serving you know on a federation. Again, the federation is not just Earth, right? Mm -hmm. It's all these different planets, but you know, it's still kind of humans were 
the default, maybe just because back in the 60s, they didn't want to spend money on like makeup for a bunch of different alien species and stuff right. like that. But once we got into the 90s with Star Trek, the idea that, the, again, there were many more alien crew members serving on the ship and the idea, as told through the principal characters, whether it be Worf or you mentioned Seven and Nine in Voyager, like once you remember, once Seven and Nine came aboard Voyager, she ended up being a tremendous asset to yes. that. Yes, yeah. huge. Not just yeah. not just because she, under, she understood the Borg and brought all that technology and was super, super smart, but because she thought about things differently and uh, the, the, the culture that she came from encouraged her to think about things differently. Data, who is basically kind of a species all to himself, would often have a perspective on something that, you know, wouldn't come from Riker or Picard or Crusher or someone else. It's like, and it's, it's that ability to kind of like bring your own cultural heritage and your different worldview and your different cultural background to the table in a way that allows you to present different perspectives. Like that was one of the great things about Picard, right? When people sat around the table, he wanted to hear everyone's point of view. And one of the reasons why those point of views were valuable to him is they weren't all the same. The way that Kling, the way that Worf thinks about something is probably going to be very different right. to the way that Data right. thinks about something. But he wants yeah. to hear all those different perspectives, all those different uh, points of view. And uh, I just thought that was just kind of a wonderful way to illustrate how, you know, there is, there is strength in diversity and having different cultural perspectives around the table. Absolutely. And Gene knew that seeing yourself as a viewer in the families on the show, you felt at home. And I would be remiss if I did not mention Culber and Stamets on Discovery, the first gay couple, married gay couple in Star Trek series. So, so many great points that we made today. Thank you both so much. And I have you both again for another episode tomorrow. So I hope our listeners will join us again tomorrow. And if you want to watch a video of Ming-Na Wang reading today's quote, you can check it out on our social media media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I hope you'll join the three of us again one more time for an episode of Quoting Gene Roddenberry. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Quoting Gene Roddenberry. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's quote. So tweet us, post us, DM us, whatever. We're at Roddenberry on Twitter and Facebook and at Roddenberry Official on Instagram. Quoting Gene Roddenberry is a Roddenberry podcast hosted by me, Rachel True. And me, Trent Venegas. Producing are Claire Kramer and Kelsey Goldberg with executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Engineering and editing are provided by Elizabeth Joy Windham. And special thanks to all those who were kind enough to read a quote and give a voice to Gene Roddenberry's everlasting words. Live long and prosper. 